Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Knowing what to look out for can help you proofread and revise to be unbiased, clear, and specific. Welcome to WriteCast, a casual conversation for serious writers, a monthly podcast by the Walden University Writing Center. I'm Claire Helikoski. And I'm Casey Walls. APA 7th edition has a lot more clarity on bias-free language and inclusive language, and we want to dive into that a bit today. Yeah, and these changes are important both to maintain scholarly objectivity and in terms of maintaining APA. So per the APA manual, the author must strive to use language that is free of bias, meaning the implied or irrelevant evaluation of the group or groups they are writing about. It also says it is unacceptable to use constructions that might imply prejudicial beliefs or perpetuate biased assumptions against persons on the basis of age, disability, gender, participation in research, racial or ethnic identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, or some combination. Instead, authors should use affirming and inclusive language. Okay, that was a lot to cover. (laughs) And I'm sure that many of you are thinking, well, I'm not biased, so I don't need to worry about this. However, it's very easy to be biased in our writing. We all have implicit biases that we are aware or unaware of, and these can creep into our writing. And sometimes something we don't personally see as biased actually does go against these updated policies. So it's always a good idea to do at least one read-through, especially of important documents, to ensure your writing is free of biased language and undertones. Absolutely. And I don't want you to put too much pressure on yourself that you nothing biased ever comes out when you're writing, because that might be impossible. But knowing what to look out for can help you proofread and revise to be unbiased, clear, and specific. Unfortunately, the APA manual has an entire chapter with lots of great tips on how to do this. So Mm -hmm. we're going to go over a few of them today. The manual recommends that writers, quote, describe at the appropriate level of specificity, end quote. So this means you want to avoid unnecessary descriptors of groups of people. So if you did a study of 100 undergraduate students about say, how often they use writing centers, and your focus is on the level of education, listing the gender of those students might be totally irrelevant. So if you're not examining gender and its impact on those students' use of writing centers, then noting that one particular student is male or that another is female is being inappropriately specific. As in, You're mentioning specific aspects of that person for reasons other than discussing the results of your study. Right. So if I wrote one female participant noted that she enjoyed visiting the writing center, saying that she is female in this sentence indicates the importance of the participant's gender relating to their comment. It would be reasonable to assume that I'm examining something specific about female participants versus male participants and how they use writing centers. But if that's not the case, then not only is that misleading to the reader, it's a little bit biased. So mentioning that 
participant's gender is irrelevant and I should just omit it and say one participant noted that they enjoyed visiting the writing center. Right. And gender is just one example here. The manual has a whole list of appropriate ways to explain people's genders, disabilities, sexual orientations, age, and socioeconomic statuses, to name just a few. So be sure to take a look at section 5.1 in the manual. Speaking of the manual, it also discusses the importance of being sensitive to labels, respect how groups refer to themselves, and if you don't know, do some research to find out. Mm -hmm. Additionally, it's important to acknowledge people's humanity. So rather than the poor, blacks, drug users, you would write those of low socioeconomic status, black people people who use drugs. I see that one a lot in reference to ethnic origin. Mm -hmm. Always use people. Always use people. Or it takes (laughs) away someone's humanity and is therefore biased. Even if that isn't your intention or if you're trying to use appropriate labels or even mimicking phrasing that you found in a source for the APA 7th edition, make sure that you're giving people their humanity when you describe them as a group. And while we're remembering that populations are made up of individual humans, I also want to talk about something called generalization bias. So this is probably the most common issue regarding bias that I see when I'm doing my paper review. So writing something like students from multilingual backgrounds struggle with literacy and writing is technically a biased statement. There are likely some multilingual students who excel in these areas. A good one, Casey. Yes, I see that a lot too. Generalizations can unintentionally be biased because saying that something is true for the whole group implies that it can't be untrue mm-hmm. or there are no other possibilities. So in cases where you have a generalization bias, it can be an easy fix. Like some students from multilingual backgrounds may struggle with literacy and writing. Adding wording like some and may clarifies that you don't mean all absolutely <laughs> no exceptions. Exactly. Uh, or Yeah. Or if your statement is based on a concrete statistic, you can make it more specific instead. For example, the study found that 80 percent of students from multilingual backgrounds struggled with literacy and writing in their in their survey. So that one's clarifying that one study found that a specific percentage of the group of people surveyed had a certain result or tendency. No study worth its salt is going to claim they know an absolute truth for an entire population, that this is always true for everybody. That's just not how academic (laughs) studies work. And there's a lot more in this section of the APA manual, and it's all really great. So we did want to touch on one topic that we have previously looked at in an earlier episode, and that's the use of the singular they. What does singular they mean? Basically, it's if the pronoun writers should use when the gender of a person is unknown or irrelevant. They in the singular is now considered grammatically correct in these instances. For example, one participant enjoyed visiting the writing center. They said they felt more confident after they left. This is singular because I am referring to one individual participant, but I am using they, which in many other situations will refer to more than one individual. 
You should also use they or them if that is the participant's or individual person's preferred pronoun. So this rule kind of sounds like it might be breaking an old rule, but I think you'll actually find that it frees up your writing. So instead of figuring out someone's gender or using his slash her or he or she, you can just use they and save yourself time and effort. It's a win-win. You have less to worry about and you ensure you're being respectful in your scholarship. It definitely does save time and effort. All right, so quick review of what we discussed today. First, avoid bias in your writing as much as possible. This means being careful about these descriptors that you use for groups and individuals. Use terms the groups use to describe themselves and remember to acknowledge their humanity. Don't add descriptors that aren't necessary and use the singular they to your advantage for instances where gender is either unknown or irrelevant. And for more, check out Chapter 5 of the 7th Edition Manual. Until next time, keep writing. Keep inspiring. WriteCast is a monthly podcast produced by the Walden University Writing Center. Visit our online writing center at academicguides.waldenu.edu slash writing center. Find more WriteCast episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us on our blog and at writing support at waldenu.edu. Thanks for listening.